Well, good evening. A very good evening to you. Welcome to Equip. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, great to have extra tables set up, so do keep uh, coming through. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Rob Phillips. Uh, I'm the lead minister here at St. Mary's, and uh, we uh, thank you for coming along this evening. And uh, if you're joining us on Zoom as well, hello to you at home. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Now, this evening, we're going to be thinking about the topic of sexuality and relationships. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, Ed Shaw uh, has uh, joined us. Ed, do you want to come up? And uh, we'll just get to know you a little bit more. Um, Ed, welcome. Thank you for coming to Basingstoke. Uh, and, uh, the center of the universe. Absolutely. That's what we like to hear. Um, Ed, we... we um, we go quite far back now, don't we? We're getting old, aren't we? But, um, we <laughs> 20 years or so. 20 years or so. So I knew Ed um, at university, and Ed's one of the few people who knew me as a non-Christian. So um, do, yeah, uh, do grab him for stories afterwards. <laughs> um, but we were, I was at university, Ed was a student minister, and one of the people responsible for me coming to the Lord. So um, it's great to uh, have you come and speak to us. Um, tell us a little bit about what you get up to now. Yeah, so um, I'm still in Bristol, um, been there about yeah, 23 years now, wow. um, and I'm the pastor of a Anglican church plant bang in the centre of Bristol called Emmanuel City Centre, and I do that for most of my time. I also have responsibilities across a family of churches called Emmanuel Bristol, got three churches, um, and I am the ministry director of something called Living Out, and Living Out is an organisation set up by me and a couple of friends uh, almost 10 years ago. Uh, people who are same-sex attracted, gay themselves, but Christians, wanting to articulate to the world around us that you can be a Christian, you can be a follower of Jesus, who happens to be same-sex attracted, happens to be gay, and live in the light of what the Bible teaches about sex and marriage. And yeah, we've been doing that for about 10 years, and I spend about a day and a half uh, doing various things for them, like this. Mm. And then in my spare time, I do things like uh, being a member of the General Synod of the Church. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And various other exciting committees. Yes. Um, we've already chatted about that, and it was very exciting. It was so, very exciting. Um, just tell us a bit about that subject. So um, it's a subject that uh, I guess a lot of us find difficult to perhaps think about. Perhaps we're, we're, we're personally involved um, in that subject, or we, we know it's very contentious to our world. Um, why is it you are attracted to helping people think through that subject? Yeah, I, I think that there can be a feeling that, you know, from among many of us, that we, wouldn't it be great if we, if, we, if we could just stop talking about sexuality and just start talking about Jesus? That's often what people say. And I always want to say when people say that, no, actually any conversation about Jesus is going to end up at some point being a conversation about sexuality because the Bible, when it wants to, for instance, help us grasp how much God loves us, Jesus, the language and imagery of sexuality. Um, what are we told about where history will end in the Bible? Well, with a wedding between a husband, God's son Jesus, and the church, the bride. And so any discussion about marriage and relationships, is, it's not long before you end up having to start to talk about Jesus because the marriage between a man and a woman in creation is meant to point us to the new creation where this world is heading. Mm -hmm. So I love going on talking around sexuality because it's basically a chance uh, to talk about Jesus. I think we'll pause there for a moment. What a great place to pause. That so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's great. So just to 
highlight practically where we're going to go this evening. Uh, we're going to finish at 9.30, God willing. And uh, before that, we are... Um, sorry, the, the second session this evening will be an extended Q&A. So um, we really want lots of questions and answers. And we really want uh, questions from all different types of people uh, to, to, to ask those. Um, we've tried to do that in a way that's anonymous. So we're uh, going to use Pigeonhole, which is known to many of us uh, if we're regulars here on a Sunday. And on that, you'll have a chance to upvote particular questions you want asked um, if you haven't got access to that technology, I know this may not be as anonymous, but, but do tap someone on your shoulder who looks like they know what they're doing and uh, submit a question uh, because it'd be great to hear uh, lots of questions from all of us. People watching at home on Zoom, uh, you're able to submit questions as well and uh, the link will be either on your table through the QR code or on the interweb behind me, I think. Yes. Um, before that, Ed's going to come and speak to us uh, on the topic of sexuality and relationships, and uh, before that, we're going to sing. But um, let me start by reading some words from Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. And so we ask our Heavenly Father, as we gather this evening to think through this topic, that you would show yourself to us. We thank you, Father, that you are compassionate and gracious, faithful and righteous. And we confess, Father, that so often in our actions and our thoughts, we are not. But we pray, Father, that you would help us, as Ed has mentioned, to see the Lord Jesus more clearly through what we think about this evening. Please be with Ed as he teaches us, as he answers questions. Please guide his words and his answers so that they would point to the Lord Jesus and be faithful to your word. And please be with us all, Father, to listen to what you say and to remember the goodness of your ways. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is a great joy to be uh, with you uh, this evening, both because of the link uh, with Rob, but also because you've sent loads of great people to Bristol over the years. So thank you so much for the various gifts. I, I'm tempted to sort, of, to, to sort of reel out a roll of honour of people you've sent, but I, I will then lose somebody's name and somebody will be upset. But thank you so much for the people you've sent in a Bristol direction over the years who've arrived uh, loving Jesus and wanting to serve him in Bristol. And we're really grateful uh, for all the work you've done uh, to take them to that place. Uh, what I want to do tonight is talk to you uh, about a friend of mine. I want to talk to you about a friend of mine who lived his whole life as a single man. Never got married, never had sex. And so in some ways to talk about him on an evening sort of entitled sexuality and relationships might seem a little bit strange. But this man somehow thrived despite the fact that he never enjoys the companionship of marriage. He never found his other half, that horrible phrase. 
Uh, he lived the whole of his life without the blessing of children, without the prospect of grandchildren. He lived the whole of his life without the joy of sex, being, being physically united to another person. And incredibly, this friend of mine did all of that in a culture that was absolutely obsessed with marriage and sex. All his friends and relatives would have been married by their probably more mid-late teens, early 20s. In his context, not having children was a sign of God's curse on your life. And it would have been culturally unacceptable for him to to do anything sexually outside the marriage of a man and a woman, and he wasn't married. And so just think for a moment, if you can, think yourself into his shoes. How hard it must have been for him to go to wedding after wedding of the people that he'd grown up with. Everybody else celebrating what he didn't have. Think how painful it must have been for him to cradle children, to have children in his arms, knowing that he'd never have his own. Think of how challenging it must have been for him to say no to sexual temptation without the promised relief of enjoying sex someday soon. Why did this friend of mine do it? Why did he stay single? Why live life single and childless and without sex. Not many of us have. Let's be honest, not many of us perhaps feel that we could. Well, my friend was not living his life for this world, but for the world to come. He believed in the resurrection of the dead and eternal life in a world made new. He was looking forward to something much better than marriage and sex in the here and now. He was anticipating what they point us forward to, which is the ultimate wedding, the ultimate marriage, the union of heaven and earth, the marriage of God's son Jesus to God's people, the church. That's what he was living for. That's what he was working towards. And yet in the meantime, when he lived on this earth, he didn't live life without companionship. He had numerous close friends of both sexes as well as a wide social circle. He did not live life without children. He loved and cared for them in a culture where children were often pushed right to the margins. He did not live life without touch. He was hugged. He was stroked, he was washed, he was held by others. In fact, if you ask me, which human being do I know that has most lived a human life in all its fullness, I would point you straight to him. He lived and worked in community with other people 24-7. I can picture him now with kids climbing all over him and other people, as it were, trying to sort of pull them off. I can see him with a friend hugging his feet as she wept. I can see him sort of sitting down for a meal with a group of friends and one of them just leaning against him as they ate a feast. I look at his life and I think, that's the life I want. That's a life in all its fullness. That's a complete human life. 
he, re- he enjoyed relational intimacy with people in every way but the sexual. His was the life well lived. His friends wept when he was taken away from them. In him, we see the sort of life, the quality of relationships with others that we actually all want for ourselves and for those we love. Well, what's my friend's name? Well, I hope by now you've got the answer. (laughs) My friend's name is Jesus Christ. If you think about it, all that I've said is true of him. God himself in human form. He lived life in its fullness. He is the perfect example of what it is to be a fully rounded human being. And yet he lived as a single man, as a childless man, who died a virgin. And just think of how extraordinary it is to articulate that truth into our culture today. That... A single man, a childless man who never had sex, lived the the greatest human life that there ever has been. We somehow, when we got to the sort of cultural moment when we cannot conceive that that could be true of someone, that that could be true of him, that that could be true of anyone else. I mean, how can you live life to the full without somebody else, without kids, without sex? We don't really believe that, do we? The culture around us doesn't believe that. If we're really honest, we don't believe that too. But his life is my life. And his life might be quite similar to your life too. Everything I've described either has been, could or will be true of me or you. We can live life in its fullness. We can live life as it's meant to be lived. We can enjoy our best life, even if we are single, even if we are childless, even if we never have sex. And the life of Jesus Christ recorded for us in the eyewitness accounts by his disciples proves that in history. But we doubt that, don't we? We don't doubt his life, But we do doubt the reality that somebody can enjoy life and be single, be childless, be a virgin. When people change their minds when it comes to sexuality and relationships, when people change their minds on Christian ethics, in my experience, it's always because they just don't think it's a doable thing. They don't think it's a good thing. They don't think it's a fair thing. And then they find the new interpretations of Scripture that allow them to believe that. But the, the crunch point is this. You just can't do it. It's not reasonable to ask anybody to be single, childless, and a virgin. But if we get to that crunch point, if we're at that crunch point, we've got to recognize that if we start to say that you can't do it, that you can't be single, that you can't be childless, that you can't say to anybody, don't have sex. We are saying that what Jesus did isn't possible. And what Jesus did isn't good. 
And what Jesus did isn't relevant to people's lives today. Jesus is the best expression of what it is to be human. But he shows us a very different way to be human than the culture around us articulates, that the culture in here articulates too. Because let's be honest, in most churches, to do well in most churches, to feel at home in most churches, you basically need to be married and have 2.4 children named after the minor prophets. <laughs> you know, those, those who come through the doors, you know, new to this church on a Sunday, husband and wife, 2.4 children, it's very easy, isn't it, to welcome them in. You'll have ways of doing it. it the person who comes in single in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s, we struggle to, to look after them well. And so often people look in and, and, and they think, oh, that's a community you do well. If you, you know, it's, a, it's a great church for young families. And I think in a lot of churches in the UK today, we've got the irony that if you arrive as a couple with two children, you'll be looked after and loved very well. But if you were Jesus, single man in his early 30s, not showing much sign of getting married, or the Apostle Paul, single man, you know, later on in life, not particularly good looking and perhaps with, you know, not so many social skills, you certainly wouldn't be looked after very well. Which shows that there's a bit of a gap, isn't there, between, between us and the New Testament, between the culture in here and the culture of Jesus and the early church. And so I just want us to spend a bit of time now focusing on Jesus and seeing how his life contradicts the culture around us, but also contradicts the culture in here and corrects so many of the wrong attitudes we've got in our own hearts and minds today. There are three ways which I want us to particularly hear that Jesus contradicts culture out there in here. And the first way is this. We don't have to find our other half to complete us. Now, some of you know that's true because you found your other half and they haven't completed you. (laughs) So you have discovered that in a particularly painful way. But it is out there, isn't there? When are you going to find your other half? Can I meet your other half? Who is your other half? Um, Jesus was the most complete expression of humanity and he didn't have another half. He was a complete human being. We don't have to find somebody else to complete us. In fact, the only body that is meant to complete us is Jesus himself. Really interesting, isn't it, that Jesus takes up the language of being the bridegroom to his bride, the church. We are not going to be completed by another human being. We are only going to find completion in a relationship with Jesus, the bridegroom. If you have an other half, it's him. Our other half as the church is him. He is the only one that will completely and utterly satisfy us. I love John chapter 4 and the conversation Jesus has with a woman at the well. A woman who has looked for completion in a whole number of other halves that haven't worked out for her. And what does Jesus say to her? He promises her her satisfaction. He promises her completion in him. They're by a well. And so Jesus uses a a water analogy. John chapter 4, verse 14. 
Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Want to be satisfied? Drink from Jesus. Go to Jesus. He's your other half. Nobody else in this room is going to completely satisfy you in the way that he does. We don't have to find our other half to complete us. That's a relief, isn't it? Relief for those who are single. Big relief for quite a few of us who are married to. His life also proves this. Second thing. We don't need to have our own biological children. We don't need to have our own biological children. He lived a complete and full human life, and he did not have biological children. And that's a relief, isn't it? One of the most painful things as a human being, isn't it, is to be childless. To be childless as a single man or woman. To be childless as a married man or woman. It's sort of against the natural order of things. We were given bodies to have kids and not to have kids is a really painful, hard thing, isn't it? At different stages in life, for different people, different times, but it's a really painful thing. But Jesus proves in his body that you don't need to have your own biological children to live life to the full. And Jesus, when he has, has got a body like this, and, and when he walked around this earth, he actually redefined family in a way that we often ignore. The author Tim Chester points out that Jesus never says anything that positive about the biological family. I mean, he does look after even his mother, even as he dies on the cross, but he actually doesn't say anything that positive about biological families. Instead, he redefines family and says that if you're a Christian, you're part of a spiritual family. So then if you remember, in Matthew 12, there's an incident where Jesus' mother and brothers are are sort of outside wanting to speak to him, and Jesus says to his disciples, there's people out there that want to speak to you, they say that you're their family. He says, no, you're my family. He says in, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus builds a new sort of family. Jesus builds a new sort of family tree. It's not a biological one. It's a spiritual one. And all of us in this room have the potential to have spiritual children. Now, your spiritual children might also be your biological children, but you don't need to have biological children to leave a family tree. You can have a spiritual family tree. And for me, that's one of the great comforts when I struggle with childlessness, is to know that there is a spiritual family tree that I'm part of. Really interesting for me to note that a lot of the people who most influenced me, who are my spiritual mothers and fathers, include my biological parents, but also include loads of single men and women who had the time and ability to invest in me because they were single. I am part of their spiritual family tree. And I have a spiritual family tree. remember a few years ago talking to somebody who, who said to me that they'd served alongside somebody I had mentored at a summer camp. And I said, how did you know that I'd mentored them? And he said, they were like you. <laughs> and I said, in good or bad ways? And he said, mainly good. 
But it was just a wonderful comfort for me because I was really struggling with not having my own biological children at that stage and to be, to be reminded that I have my own spiritual children who are walking around this planet like me, as it were, taking my spiritual DNA down through the generations was a huge encouragement, a huge excitement. We don't need to have our own biological children. Jesus didn't. We don't need to, to flourish as human beings. And the third thing is, we, we, we don't need to enjoy sex. We don't need to enjoy sex in the here and now to live a full uh, human life. I know it is so hard to stand up and say that because so much in the culture says, of course you've got to. And so much about our bodies says, of course you've got to enjoy sex. But Jesus had a body, Jesus had a sexual body, and he lived life to the full, and he didn't have sex. And he wasn't, as it were, missing out on intimacy himself as a result of that. And he's not calling on those of us who never have a sexual relationship to somehow do with that intimacy by saying to us, don't have sex. No, instead, actually, what Jesus is constantly doing is opening up deeper intimacy for all those that follow him. I don't know about you, but I love some of the language that, that Jesus uses to describe the relationship we have with him and his father in the power of the Spirit in John 14. Just listen to John 14, verse 23. Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my, che- my teaching. My father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. That's the sort of intimacy that is an offer to Christians. <laughs> the creator God of the universe making his home in us and with us. That is the intimacy, the relational intimacy that we are offered with the creator God of the universe who now lives inside us by the power of his spirit. I'm so often told, it's such a shame, Ed, that you have to, to live your life alone. In fact, often people seem to sort of target it in one particular moment and I said, it would be so sad if you have to die alone. And I do a nice sort of Christian revenge attack, which is I say most people die alone. (laughs) But actually the difference with being a Christian is that no Christian ever dies alone. No Christian ever dies alone. Because Jesus will be there by the power of his spirit. And the intimacy that we enjoy with him means that we never need walk alone. We will never die alone. When we do die, who will be there waking us up? Jesus. One day we'll be experientially united to him forever. Jesus tells us, Jesus' life reassures us that we don't need to find our other half to complete us, that we don't need to have our own biological children, that we don't need to enjoy sex. One evidence that all those things are true, look at Jesus. Read John's Gospel later on tonight. And see in him the perfect life. Life to the full. And I hope you see that that is good news for everybody in this room. And not just actually everybody in this room. Everybody who, for some reason, isn't in this room tonight. Because this brings hope for all of us. Different people tonight will be single or childless or not having sex for a whole variety of reasons. You know why I'm not, because there's a website that tells people that I'm gay or same-sex attracted. But why you 
are single, or why you are childless, or why you haven't had sex for a very long time, or not at all, may well be a very, very private thing that nobody else knows about. But Jesus knows why, and Jesus understands you, because Jesus has been there. Jesus has been there. He knows what it's like to be you, if you are in any of those categories. And isn't that great to know? You know, we all want, don't we, when we're really struggling with something, we all want somebody who says, I know how you feel and means it. If you're single, Jesus can look you in the eye and say, I know how it feels. If you're struggling with the pain of childlessness, Jesus can look you in the eye and say, I know how that feels. If you've never had sex, Jesus can look you in the eye and say, I know how that feels. I've been there. I know how it feels. And that means that, well, all of this means that I'm just so willing to listen to Jesus when it comes to sex and relationships. Because he's not speaking outside of human experience. He's not just a divine voice from the sky who says, don't do that, do this. Don't do that, do this. He's someone who has lived on this earth and who speaks with authority into all these matters. He says that sex is for the marriage of one man and a woman. I think he says that pretty clearly in Matthew 19. He says that sex outside heterosexual marriage is sin. I think he says that really clearly in Mark chapter 4. And because he says that from the position of not just saying that, but doing that himself, I'm willing to listen to him. I'm willing to trust him. I'm willing to obey him. He speaks as with the authority of our creator and redeemer, but he also speaks with the authority of having been a human being, of being a human being, of knowing what it's like to inhabit one of these and to experience temptation and to experience pain and to experience the grief that being a human so often brings. And I love the fact that when Jesus says to me, Marriage is for the, I mean, sex is for the marriage, is for marriage between a man and a woman. He's not just sort of saying that and giving me a rule that he doesn't know what it's like to obey. He's actually obeyed that rule. Isn't that helpful? The Jesus who says that um, is not asking me to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. He kept to his own rules, he obeyed his own commands, he gave instructions. And follow those instructions himself. That's quite powerful, isn't it? Into a culture where we got quite used to political leaders giving instructions and not obeying them themselves. Jesus gives instructions and he keeps to his own rules. And I love that particularly when you turn to someone like John chapter 4 and you see that Jesus was in situations in which I would have mucked up. I don't know if you know John Ford that well, but it's a conversation between Jesus and a woman as well. It's a conversation that happens in the middle of the day, in the heat of the sun. And it's a conversation that happens when Jesus is tired. We're told he's tired. We're told he's alone. And we're told that the woman that he was speaking to has quite a sexual history. 
and we're told that she had had sexual relationships with a number of men, and there's potentially the implication that she's out there in the middle of the day because she was on the edge of society because of her sexual background. And I know that I muck up sexually when I'm tired and when I'm alone and when there's an opportunity. That's when I muck up. That's when most people muck up in this area. And Jesus is in that situation. And what Jesus does is very different to what we do. He doesn't give in to temptation. He doesn't treat another person as an object for him to satisfy himself. Instead, he begins a conversation with her. He shows love and compassion to her. He does not mistreat her in any way. And he uses the opportunity to point her to the one person who will satisfy her forever, who is him. And and I love just seeing Jesus in action because we live in a world, don't we, where hashtag me too and other movements have come along and proved that basically anybody that sought to give us advice on sex and relationships has basically become is a moral failure themselves as a hypocrite themselves we live in a world don't we where people are looking for someone who can speak with authority and authenticity when it comes to sex and relationships but turns out there is no one And the people we were meant to follow, the people we were told were living life to the full by being sexually promiscuous, by living the lifestyle that meant you could do it, were actually damaging other people and themselves all the time. And so I don't know about you, I'm looking for someone who has integrity and authenticity on this subject. And actually I know my friends and family who don't know yet, yet, yet know Jesus are looking for the same. And I know in particular that that is what young people are most looking for. Somebody who can speak with integrity and authenticity about sexuality and relationships. And passages like John chapter 4 tell us that, that Jesus is the one. That when people ask us questions about sexuality and relationships, we have a wonderful opportunity to talk about him, to do the sort of thing I've done tonight. And that instead of actually, in particularly in evangelistic conversations or conversations with younger people, we shouldn't live in fear of questions coming up about sexuality and relationships. We shouldn't be praying, please, please do not ask me about sex. Please, please do not ask me about marriage and what I believe about it. Please, please, you know, we shouldn't be praying that under our breath when we're in a conversation. We should actually be praying, please ask me about sex and marriage and sexuality so that I can talk to you about Jesus. And I can talk to you about what he was like. And I can talk to you about how he was a single man, how he never had sex, how he lived life to the full even though he was childless. Um, Let's be praying for the opportunity to talk about how he points us to where this world is heading, which is a union and difference between him and the church. How he will satisfy all our longings and our desires completely in a way that nobody else will. Any conversation about sexuality and relationships should lead us to Jesus. We should be praying that people ask us about sex and relationships so that we can most of all have the opportunity to talk about him. I'm going to pray that we will. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we come with questions and our own personal struggles and pain, 
in the whole area of sexuality and relationships, the best thing we can do is turn to you and know that you understand and to know that in you we have life to the full lived in history for us in a way that contradicts so many of the stories we've been told in the world around us, but also so many of the stories we've been told in the church itself. And we pray that we would be corrected by Jesus' life and words in this whole area of sexual relationships. Pray that we'd have the confidence to go to him with our own pain and failings. Pray that we'd have the opportunities to go to friends and family too and point out how he is the one that they're looking for. He is the only one that will satisfy us and them completely. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to spend the next few moments uh, answering your questions. Do keep them coming in and do keep voting them up and we'll do our best to get through them all. But we, we, we hope this will be a good time because Ed's just done a lot of thinking on this. So we thought we would um, just give a lot of time over to Q&A. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what we've remembered of the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. Thank you, Father, that he is living water. And we pray, Father, that as we uh, think on these questions this evening, that you would help us, Father, to come to him. Please help Ed as he uh, seeks to understand the questions and to answer them. We pray you give him wisdom and faithfulness to your word. And we pray for us all, Father, that we would, um, as a result of this evening, uh, come to know and depend on the Lord Jesus more and more. We pray this by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go straight in there with this question. Thank you for asking it. Um, what sort of support can we give church members who have family, uh, who have chosen a gay lifestyle? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think one of the things is we can, we can the, the, the day that sometimes happens is that when, you know, we've got friends or people in the church family whose, you know, son's got married to another man, that basically we just don't talk about it anymore. And as a result, they think, oh, you know, basically the, the son becomes the sort of a non-person who's scrubbed out of any conversation. And it, that could be obviously really painful for the parents um, and everybody that we just, we just don't see, so, you know, I think it's, it's the basic things. It's just, you know, make sure we're asking about their children and all their children and what they're getting up to and um, making sure we're praying for them as they seek to be like Jesus in that situation. And, you know, uh, ask them how they're finding it. And, you know, what are the things they find particularly difficult? What are the moments? What are the times of the year that they find particularly difficult? You know, just, just rather than, I think what tends to happen in Christian communities is that it's just not talked about. And instead we should be talking about it, asking questions, see how we can help. Obviously, you know, I can, you know, the, the best way of finding out how to help someone is to ask the person themselves. And I know that's, you know, quite basic. But for some reason, in some situations, we think, well, I couldn't actually ask them themselves. And I've really appreciated the people who've actually said, um, how can we help you? You. And, you know, they've made it personal. Because I could give you some advice now that might be applicable to, you know, situations friends of mine have been in, but aren't actually applicable to your friend or the person that you're thinking of behind this question. So just ask them, how can we help and support you? What do you find hard? 
what are the things we've done that's made it hard to talk about um, you know, your child's situation or what effect that's had on you. So just ask, I think, would be the biggest thing. Thank you. I, I wonder if there's another way of looking at that question. Forgive me if this is not the intention, but I wonder if there may also be the question behind that of what advice or help you can give those of us who have family who have got uh, someone in a gay lifestyle. Yeah, and I think that it partly depends on, you know, from a Christian point of view, um, if, they're not, if they're not a Christian... I think the danger is you think from a Christian perspective the big problem is that they are sleeping with somebody of the same sex because that's against our rules. Now, you know, if they're not a Christian, the big problem is that yet they're not yet convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead um, and you want to be introducing them to Jesus and convince them, helping them to come to know that Jesus is Lord of all and that's been proved in history by his resurrection from the dead. So in some ways, the main thing is not the fact that they're in a gay relationship. The main thing is they do not believe that Jesus is Lord. And the main thing that's going to change that situation is not you telling them again and again that it's wrong um, or you policing their sexual relationship, but you, you know, helping them discover that Jesus is Lord. So I think if they're not a Christian, that's, that's the big thing. Remember that. If they are professing faith in Christ um, and you think, oh my goodness, how does this uh, affect things? I think... The advice I just, you know, often give is, you know, you, in my, I think we often think that, that the big thing, we have to make a stand and give a speech as to how we disapprove of them. And, you know, I think we do, we do want them to know that what we believe. We don't want to go quiet. We don't want to sort of lose integrity by never saying perhaps that we disagree with some of the choices they've made. But... We do not have to, as it were, make a speech on every occasion about that. And we do not have to make it the big thing. Some of, so often they'll know that you disagree anyway. And actually what they're going to be most alive to is not the speech you're going to make, but whether you treat them in a Christ-like way. So it's going to be just being like Jesus. And you know, I found in interactions with people who are in same-sex gay relationships, they know that I don't think that's the best for them. Um, sometimes we've had conversations where I've said that, um, but we've also, I've taken interest in them and their relationship. How did they meet? You know, those sort of things, rather than it becoming a no-go area. But also, I've avoided it becoming the big thing that we always talk about. Um, just, so I think it's just, you know, just, and, and, and if you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure I can get that right, I always think that this is when it's great, isn't it, to have the Holy Spirit living inside us and for us to be praying. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> I'm going on holiday with it again. It's bound to come. It's going to be really tense. Please, God, by your spirit, help me this time to say the right things and to be the right sort of person in this situation. That, that's really helpful. I, I wonder, some of us might feel that by asking about their relationship or you know, if they've got children or, um, or they're getting married or something like that, that we're perhaps going to be perceived as compromising or perhaps condoning that relationship. And just, is there anything you could say that's helpful on that? Well, I, I think I, people do, people, I think we become ultra-sensitive on this in a way that we don't on other things. So, you know, when we, you know, the, I'm always wanting to encourage us to, you know, when somebody's in a heterosexual relationship with somebody they're not married to, we don't all sort of have to, you know, we don't all sort of panic as much as we seem to panic in this scenario. Mm. And, you know, without sounding patronising and probably failing, part of me wants to say to them, we just need to calm down, 
and be like Jesus. There's a mug slogan for you. (laughs) Um, uh, Calm down and be like Jesus in these situations. And because you can't do that by yourself, you need the help of God's Spirit to do a lot of praying. Great. That'd be a great poster to put on our door, (laughs) won't it? So we should do that. Let's uh, move on to another question. Um, uh, You spoke a bit about the uh, nuclear family and and, and, uh, quoted from Tim Chester, who spoke about uh, Jesus' attitude to the spiritual family. Um, How do we do a better job of welcoming and integrating that non-nuclear family into our church life here at St. Mary's? Yeah, thank you. So I... Think for a moment, if you can, it's quite hard because it doesn't really exist, of the dream nuclear or biological family. Okay, try and think of that, usually by contrasting it with your own. <laughs> uh, but think of the ideal, and think of the, what, what, what would a nuclear family naturally share? Well, things like, you know, your home, food, uh, the bringing up of children, uh, holidays, Christmas, Easter, birthdays, um, the hard things in life, bad news, good news, grief, pain. Those are all things that you naturally share in a good, functioning, nuclear, biological family. They should all be the things you naturally share. In fact, even more naturally share in the community of faith that's the church. So just to give a couple of examples, um, you know, I'm about to go on holiday on Friday with um, a family who have had me and some other single friends on the same sort of annual holiday for the last 18 years. Um, and that's just been a lovely thing that we've just gone on holiday every year, have watched their kids grow up. And also, one of the beautiful things about it is that at some point in the week, the dad of this family will um, take me to one side and thank me so much for coming on this holiday and, and just thank you for the sacrifice it is for me to go on holiday. He's, so I don't feel as if it's like a sort of, poor Ed, let's invite him. On. He, every time he's saying thank you so much for coming on holiday with my family, I know that's a big sacrifice because you could have had a holiday without kids. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really nice thing. So it's just a really practical thing every year for the last, yeah, it must be 18 years now because my godson is 18 and is interrailing this year rather than spending time with me, which I'm still a little bit hurt by. Um, so that's one example. And the other example, actually, <laughs> this is, you know, this, this is from a couple who'd really got this. I once preached on this. This is years ago. Preached on, you know, church family you know, church is family, and it needs to really be like family and feel like family. And I was in a situation where I was in a rental property, I was getting chucked out, and they said, we think you need to buy. And they said, we would like to put, we'd like to sort of give you the money for a long-term, we'd like to give you the money for a deposit for a long-term mm-hmm. loan. And I said, I couldn't possibly have it from them. They said, would you accept it from your parents? And I said, yes, I would accept it from my parents, but they haven't offered. And they said... <laughs> Well, you know, you preached that sermon a couple of weeks ago about church yeah. and family. Yeah. So if, you didn't, if you're not going to accept it from us, you're undermining your sermon. Mm-hmm. That's what you taught <laughs> us. And I walked away from this, 20, you know, it was 20 or 30,000 pounds from one sermon, which doesn't happen often. <laughs> I mean, I think my, my, you know, my, my fee for this evening is that, you know, somewhere around yeah, there. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. um, halfway, inflation's halfway. been big <laughs> over the last 20 years. But, you know, just that was, you know, it's always that's an extreme example. I'm not saying, you know, St. Mary's should become a mortgage centre. <laughs> but it just showed they got it. Yep. And it just, if, we, if, if there's things we would naturally do for a family member, those are the things we should naturally do for church family. Mm. That's, that's what we should be thinking. Can I say, sorry, I'm just going to embarrass you for 30 seconds. Can I just say Ed's book on the plausibility problem is excellent on this question. I've not read a book like it. Um, it is a book that um, I think some people describe it as a book about 
um, singleness and sexuality, but I think it's far bigger than that. It's a book about the church and what sort of family we could be. Um, I can hear some people sort of affirming that who have read it. Um, in fact, we've got a copy here, haven't we? Yeah, we, I, <laughs> I always bring a copy with me because it reminds me what I think. There we are. <laughs> and if necessary, I can look up and find out what I think. Yes. Um, but really, I would recommend um, this book on that question about how do we shape church. Um, I think, from my perspective, I think we get a lot of things right. Of course, there's always, um, yeah, places to, to think more about. So that's a plausibility problem. Um, yeah, you can't really do signed copies, can you? But I was just thinking. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Ed. Um, let's, uh, let's go on to another question here. Um, what could it look like, I'll just read this one for us, uh, what could it look like to affirm singleness and childlessness without downplaying the goodness of marriage and family? Uh, often it feels guilt-driven rather than grace-driven. Yeah, um, I mean, I think if there's, you know, there are pendulum swings, I think, you know, from my perspective, and you, you're very, I'm very happy for you to agree, the pendulum has been you know, one of our responses to the sexual revolution, to the breakdown of families and marriage and society around us has been to really stress the importance of marriage and family. And that's really good, and the cultural context in some ways explains that. But I think we have done that in a way that has made people who are single, who don't have their own kids, feel on the outside. And so if there's, there's a rebalancing to be done, I don't think we want to do the full pendulum swing that those, you know, who are married with kids are made to feel unwelcome. <laughs> Although confession when we planted Emmanuel City Centre within in the first year a couple came up to me and said you know it's quite a difficult church to be a married couple in and I just went yes (laughs) in a really not particularly pastoral way (laughs) Um, because that's unusual Um, you know you really want to where everybody feels welcome and you just need to, I think, you know, just thinking, where, you know, what, what's been our tendency in the past? How can we rebalance things? And how can, you know, we, and just recognize that in some ways, if I can put it like this, the, the competition is a bit unfair because it's very easy to celebrate marriage and children. We've got ways of doing that. You know, marriage services, wedding anniversaries. Isn't it great that this couple have got engaged? Uh, church family news. These people have had kids. They've named them after the minor prophets, isn't that great? <laughs> you know, th- there's ways to say, when it comes to singleness and childlessness, how do you celebrate them? Mm. And I don't think we, and, uh, and you know, I don't want to say, you know, Ed Shaw, another year of singleness, let's give him a round of applause. You know, we don't want that sort of situation. Um, but, you know, the things that have meant a lot to me um, are things like, um, well, just actually people who point out things I've done and things I've been able to do because I'm single and actually because I'm childless. And actually, there have been a lot that I've been able to do in my life because I'm single and childless. And it's people that have pointed that out and just said, you know, in a really, you know, they, yeah, they just said, they've helped me see that so much of what I have brought to our church family, what I've brought to it, sort of wider things, have just come about because I'm single and childless. Mm. And, just, and they haven't said, it, isn't that wonderful? But they've just helped me to see, you know, there's been, you know, there's been, there is value in my singleness. There's value in my childless because of the other opportunities that opened up. I've had the opportunity to mentor so many more people because I don't have my own kids. 
Um, I may have been able to do so much more ministry because I'm not married. And just to sort of recognize that and celebrate that and rejoice in that. Mm. Um, in perhaps more low-key ways than you would some other things. Or the other thing, single people's birthdays. I can remember having, oh, it's just one of the most... I remember when I worked at Christchurch Clifton, which is mm. where Rob and I met, there was, there was a woman who who'd been on the mission field most of her adult life and then returned home to look after her parents and then, you know, and then basically gave the last, sort of, I think, 20 years of her life to doing ministry amongst international students in Bristol. And we found out it was her 80th birthday and we did a surprise 80th birthday. And it was a lovely morning, but the biggest shock was that I think it was the first time anybody had ever thrown a party for her since she was a mm. child. Mm. And there'd been no celebration out of of her as a person mm, mm. and of the fact that she was a woman in her 80s who had a ministry amongst international students who came to this early morning prayer meeting that was largely students and she had had so much, there'd been so much gospel fruit and fruitfulness in her life but it had never been acknowledged or celebrated mm. and we had a chance that morning to give her a very small celebration but I wish we'd registered it and made it a much bigger celebration. Mm. Thank you for that and um, just with my sort of St. Mary's hat on. I think that'd be a great conversation to continue. Uh, so I'd set up some ideas there, but please do continue that conversation with, between you. Uh, so I think we're going to return with this next question back to... Um, I thought we were, but it's been upvoted, so I've got the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to... It's like general election. That's now, right, yeah, it? yeah. It's quite I, exciting. It's There's a new here. result in that's from right, somewhere else. That's right. uh, we just had a by-election, and I think... Um, so the I guess the question about um, here, how can we hold biblical truths about sex, sexuality, whilst actually being welcoming to everyone? Um, what would it look like to welcome people who might attend St. Mary's who are same-sex, in a same-sex relationship? Um, well, I, again, I think, I think one of the things is um, we're... Most churches I come across are very good at welcoming people who are not yet Christians um, and welcoming people who are not yet Christians who have got loads of things going on in their lives that um, are completely consistent with them not yet being Christians. And we, and we just recognize that you know, not, we don't make a big thing about it and we don't panic about it. But for some reason, when it comes to them being in a same-sex relationship, we panic about it. And again, do you want to say, calm down and be like Jesus? Um, and, you know, just, you just do all the normal things. I think perhaps the particular thing to be alert to is that they will be, these, they will often be, these people hate me. Mm -hmm. And so it's always, we need to do, it's always go the extra mile to make them feel welcome. And we also need to recognize that one of the most unloving things we can do is uh, welcome, but never, ever articulate that... We believe that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, and that we believe in biblical marriage, and that you know we we do believe some things that um, they'll find hard. And because I think what often goes wrong in churches that are so intent on welcoming is they never actually say anything about what Jesus teaches on this, and then it comes as a total shock and surprise, and even more damage is done down the line because suddenly we never knew this. How could you have kept this from us? Mm. So it's again, it's again that speaking the truth in love, being loving and gracious and welcoming, but not, as it were, keeping quiet and not, you know, sort of 
being afraid of sharing what we believe, and you think, that's a really impossible combination. How can we do that? Um, then if you realize that the Bible is full of impossible balances, you know, speaking the truth in love, who can do that? Um, you know, combining grace and truth, who can do that? You know, all these sort of things like, you know, um, how does God's word, you know, how does the law fit with grace? Oh, there are all these impossible things. And I love how Francis Schaeffer says, yep, there are, basically there are all these impossible things which you can't do without the help of God's spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can, you can only do speaking the truth and love if you're empowered by God's spirit. So again, it's praying for God's spirit to come up with an impossible biblical balance. Um, of welcoming somebody, making them feel a part of things, and yet also not hiding the truth from them. So can I push that a bit further, Ed? Because I I think most of us are quite happy to be welcoming to everyone, you know, if someone turns up on a Sunday to smile um, and say hello. I guess there might be the question further down the line, if, say, someone's in a same-sex relationship with children, how does being integrated into the church family look? Um, who has that type of conversation with someone to, to explain um, what uh, the leadership thinks about what the Bible teaches. Could, could you help us a bit with the kind of... It feels like there potentially could be a, a, a sort of ceiling to how far someone could get into church coming from that background. Well, again, I suspect... You know, well, I, I've got the chance... You know, I, I don't know your situation, but I suspect in your church, in the past and the present and the future, there have been... You know, people who are investigating Christianity or have just through some sort of, you know, friendship relationship started coming along to church who are living with somebody they're not married to and in a sexual relationship, and you're used to that, and you've you've navigated that, and you've you thought through, um, you know, how to talk to people about that, and sometimes you got it wrong, sometimes you got it right, but you've you've navigated this space before, if I can put it like that. I just always want to say, you take the lessons. In that scenario, the lessons you've learned, you know, the good things, the bad things, the things you've done wrong, the things you've got right, and you just transpose them into this situation. And you just are consistent in the way that you've treated heterosexual couples who are in sexually active relationships and gay couples who are in sexually active relationships. You're consistent in how you handle things. Which just, is really important from everybody's point of view. And just help us on that in terms of I guess in our minds, if we've got a heterosexual couple who are living together, there's a, there's a solution to that. In yeah. getting married, there's not, um, on, if it was a yeah, same-sex yeah. couple. There's not the sort of the nice, neat solution exactly. yes. in our minds. But, you know, and I've caused, well, I often cause controversy, but I've caused controversy. You know, we've been saying, actually, that the situation for the gay couple um, who've had kids, you know, let... The scenario, you know, let's say you have this gay couple who've, well, we've, early on in Living Acts history, we had a gay couple who'd come to faith, um, two women who had brought up a son together. He'd gone along to the local church. He'd become a Christian. Um, he'd been baptized. And at that point, much, you know, they were just horrified by all of this. And at that point, they thought, well, we need, to, we should go to his baptism. We can't not. And they were blown away by the welcome. They're blown away by the way that this church community treated their son. Actually blown away by the welcome they received from this church community, despite it being a really conservative church. Mm-hmm. And, and much to their horror, they became Christians too. <laughs> um, and then they were, well, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the solution in some people's minds were, okay, right, end of the relationship, you know, right, you need to move, both need to live in separate homes. That The solution in this scenario is 
um, an end to the household, your son's going to have to choose which of these going to live, do, live with. And the thing of living out, we were just going, well, it doesn't... The, the solution, you know, the solution may be that they actually can continue to live in the same house together, continue to bring up this child who they committed to each other. The sexual nature of their relationship is, is the problematic thing from a Christian worldview because of what sex and marriage are meant to model. And therefore... You know, the sexual relationship needs to end, but the household doesn't need to split up. And it is possible for two people to live together and bring up children successfully and not be in a sexual relationship, as, you know, is shown in other contexts. So, anyway, that's what we advise. So, the solution isn't the neat one, um, but there is a solution because actually, as we were pointing out earlier, you don't need to be having sex to thrive in life, and it's just that part of the relationship that's particularly problematic from a Christian world view. Thank you, Ed, for being grilled for us. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask a couple of questions that are pretty similar on this whole idea you were introducing us to at the beginning about Jesus knowing uh, what it means to be single. Um, someone's asked here, he wasn't just human though, so would that, um, wouldn't that change his reaction to being single his whole life? Um, I think we've got, to be, we've got to be very careful on the sort of... They, you know, there are people who said that basically Jesus was just sort of faking his humanity, you know, um, and he wasn't really human. Well, he was born. You know, he was tired. He was thirsty. He was tempted in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, he bled. Um, he had friendships. He was somebody's son. He was somebody's brother. Um, you know, he had a job. Um, he had a body that is just as bodily as your body. You know, that he, he was a human being. We've got to, you know, I think we've got to, we've got to stop sort of thinking, oh, Jesus was a sort of fake human being, going around pretending to be a human being. No, he, you know, he, he was a human being. And actually, even, and I think what we also need to remember, he is a human being. You know, we believe in the, we believe in the bodily resurrection you, you know, what did Thomas do? He, he touched Jesus' body. Um, Jesus rose from the dead and he has a body. Um, and we have the promise, you know, we know that he's got a resurrection body that he's still inhabiting. He's still a human being. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important for, to remember the humanity that, that, because it, you know, it helps us in numerous ways, the ways I sort of mentioned earlier. But, you know, Jesus, Jesus is a human being. Really important for us to get that. And to, I think, I think, we do sort of have this sort of feeling around the church that basically he was, he was pretending to be, but actually he really was. You know, when you go to the garden, when you see Jesus, you know, on the floor in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping his soul out, he wasn't acting. Um, he really was feeling. When you see Jesus in agony on the cross, he wasn't pretending um, to be in agony. He really was in the worst form of human agony that has ever been experienced. Thank you. Could I just chuck in another question similar? Um, will Jesus really have known how it feels never to marry, have children or have sex, when presumably he would have known to be content with his status as a single man? Well, we've got to remember he was tempted in every way as us. So, he, you know, he, you know he, that, that means he would have had, you know, and that he had human feelings and experiences. And again, you know, Jesus' perfection doesn't mean that he sort of floated through life never been bothered by anything. 
You know, on the cross, you know, Jesus isn't hanging there thinking, well, I know it's all going to be fine because it's going to rise again on the third day. You know, he's crying out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've got to remember that, you know, he, that part of being human is suffering and, you know, part of being tempted is resisting temptation and resisting temptation is really hard. And I, as I hope somebody's pointed out to you, we think resisting temptation is hard, but actually we usually, we usually get out of it by, by, by giving in to temptation. Jesus always resisted temptation, and there's a way in which, because of that, it would have been much harder for him. He didn't ever take the easy option that we always take. Um, he, you know, he, he fought to the end, and we see that, for instance, don't we? You know, the temptations of Jesus, there's a particularly protracted period. You know, there's those 40 days when he experiences, you know, but he's also experiencing temptation all the, all the time. Um, and got to not allow Jesus' perfection to make us think again that he sort of has floated through this world without ever being tempted anywhere, without ever experiencing suffering, without ever sort of thinking. The devil tempts him, doesn't he, with, with easy human situations. You know, and I don't want to sort of, you know, and the, 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 the temptation to settle down for a comfortable life is a big human temptation, isn't it? Um, and pretty sure that Jesus would have, you know, mm. the devil would have been saying to him, why, why go to Jerusalem? Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you in Jerusalem. You know, all those sort of things. Thank you. Very, very helpful uh, on that. Um, just slightly change of direction here. Uh, when speaking about biological sex stroke gender, uh, the common response is that these things, I presume in the Bible, are speaking into the culture then. The translations of the Bible aren't right, etc. What is the wise response? Um, I mean, on, on translation issues, you, you, can, you can do the work and you can compare the use of the Bible words with the use of the same word in other documents from around the time and you know, the, the careful work that's been done by scholars you know, shows that they were talking about the same things. You can go to loads of primary sources from um, first century, you know, from first century AD, you know, descriptions of life in places like Corinth and Rome, and you can look at um, you know, sources that talk about same-sex sexual relationships and patterns of behaviour and relationships in, in the first century, in first century Corinth. Um, and you can research them. You can find out that actually Paul knew what he was talking about when he was talking about gay relationships. You know, there were plenty of gay relationships in Corinth. Um, there were plenty of long-term, permanent, faithful, stable gay relationships in the first century world. And so this whole idea that, that language has changed or that they, did, they just have a totally different understanding of sexual relationships, I think isn't borne out by linguistic studies and by history. And I know that you're studying um, Corinthians at the moment, and in Bristol, we worked through 1 Corinthians about four or five years ago. And the big thing that struck me was that everything we learned about attitudes to sex in the body in first century Corinth felt incredibly familiar to us in 21st century Bristol. We weren't really having to do much sort of imagine what it was like to live there. We just think that this is basically the same sort of city with the same attitudes to sex in the body as first century Corinth. Paul... You know, Paul's words couldn't feel more contemporary and more relevant, and his understanding of, of, of culture then actually just transferred almost perfectly across to culture of the day because it was hard to spot the difference. And so that, that argument that language is different, attitudes were different, they didn't, Paul didn't know what he was talking about, 
Um, I just don't think bears scrutiny linguistically, historically, biblically. And just help us with that, because I, I guess some of us hear what's going on in the Church of England, and we, we hear there's debate around this issue, and I guess some people we might normally sort of see as authorities in this area can't agree. So just help us... How do we sort of navigate that? It feels quite murky there. Yeah, How well, can we be clear? I think, well, here's a little tip. Push them. Because what tends to happen, I've seen this happen again and again. I've been involved in, in the sort of Church of England conversation around sexuality for the last decade. And what tends to happen is people say, well, of course, of course, um, Paul didn't know anything. Yeah, Paul didn't know, Paul wouldn't have experienced permanent faithful, stable gay relationships. Or... Um, the understanding of marriage has changed a lot through church history. Or, of course, there was a different understanding of that word. And all those things normally are, when they're used in debate or conversation, is something that somebody has once heard that they're now taking as an excuse to reject biblical teaching. And actually, if you say, can we talk... Well, if you actually push them and ask them questions about this, it's just a statement they've heard. I mean, it isn't always true. And obviously, the danger is that you're the first time you do it as a New Testament scholar and you're embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but by and large, people get a piece of information that allows them to change their mind. And the only basis of that is a statement that they've borrowed or somebody's out. And the best thing is just to do some follow-up questions and say, well, what do you know about attitudes to sex in first century? How, you know, have you read the Greek and Roman literature of the time? Um, you know, when they're asking about the word, you know, well, you know where, where have you got that from? Or attitude, you know, there was a speech that General said in February which, which told us all that attitudes to marriage have, or practice, church practice around marriage has changed a lot down the centuries. And that's been quoted back at me numerous times since February. But as a historian, I know it's sort of true, but it's not true in the way that it's taught. So I say, well, do you want to give me some examples of how it's changed? And you find out the person actually doesn't have any examples, they just know the slogan. So just... You know, push people. Um, you might think, oh, well, I can't do that. What if they push me back? Well, yeah, you've got to do your homework too. And to help with your homework, this Sunday we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the way God's providentially arranged things, because we didn't tell you what day to come. You chose this one. Yeah. Uh, but it's nicely uh, in line with our series in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 6, um, I'll um, probably say, it's not written yet, but probably say a little bit about about that at the weekend. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, some questions more from a sort of, uh, someone experiencing these uh, sort of things uh, or trying to help people with those experiencing these sort of questions. Um, here's a question uh, on that. As someone who is married, has children and has sex, has had sex, it is difficult to encourage people who are struggling with these things. How do you have conversations sensitively without being hypocritical? Um, it's tricky, because, again, different things have helped different people. So, personally, I'm actually really helped by friends of mine who have been open and honest with me about how difficult it is to be married and to have kids and to have sex. I've been, I've been really... You know, one of the odd perks of being a pastor <laughs> is that I know that each of those things brings a huge amount of pain into people's lives in countless ways. And, therefore... I, you know, that's very helpful for me when I'm trying to resist the lie that you need to be complete. So I just, I just know that's not true, because actually those things are really difficult. Um, and you know, I've got, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, and, and so I found that helpful. Now, it's interesting, I, we were talking about, we had a leadership team meeting in my church, and you know, a single woman was saying, I find it really unhelpful when the married people say, oh, of course you've got to realize that marriage is really hard to, you know, but it, it can go down, you know, sometimes I find it really helpful, she finds it really unhelpful. Um, I think, again, you sometimes need to ask what is helpful, what is unhelpful for people. Um, and, yeah, the, if, if you think, oh, I'm, just ask the person what, what's helpful and what's unhelpful, what they can do. You know, do they, is it helpful to know how hard it sometimes is or is it not? Is it just helpful for them to be wrapped up into your family life? Um, and actually, I've often found that the people who, who don't want to be told that it's hard... Actually, when they're wrapped up in somebody's family life and they start to see that it's hard, the point gets through in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've certainly, I've certainly walked away from, you know, I've walked away so often from having spent time with the family and got in the car and gone, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to all the times you've spent time with us. No, 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 no. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, which would be fine. Uh, there's a question here um, about a a real life situation how do I support my sexually active same sex married cousin who loves Jesus and doesn't stop talking about how amazing he is can I really condemn his actions when he knows Jesus better than I do yeah thank you Um, um, you're not in the condemnation business um, that's the first thing to say. Um, Jesus is, well, you know, Jesus is, is in the condemnation of sex outside marriage business, as in he does it, um, but he does it because he wants people to be fully satisfied in him and he wants people to realise that the best way to live life is to obey him. Um, so um, you don't need to do the condemnation um, Jesus, if they really know Jesus, um, they will know, or they need to, you know, it's a sort of, you're right, they, you're right, you may be right that one, their experience of Jesus is, there's a quality about it, but there's also a lot that they're missing about Jesus. Um, and there's a lot which they're not allowing Jesus to speak into their life in this area. Now, the same is probably true for you in another area, we should stop you from being, you know, unnecessary arrogant. But but the key, the the premise of the question is that, it, you know, is in some ways wrong because they're just they're not listening to Jesus. And I think the danger is, and it's a danger that Jesus talks about, is that um, I can sound and look as if I'm passionate about Jesus, but the measure of that will be seen in my obedience to some of the trickiest things, the most challenging things that Jesus says. And sometimes we take, you know, it's, the, it's somebody's passion and, you know, and what they say that we take as the mark of oh, the really life of Jesus rather than obedience to Jesus and the really tricky things. You know, I see this in, you know, he's the people at the front at church who just seem so passionate about Jesus and what they say, but are really rude to people in the week. Whereas the couple that clean our kitchen in a way that is... Ne- I mean, you know when they're on because it's done beautifully and brilliantly. Actually, I think might be more passionate about Jesus mm-hmm. than some of the people up the front who talk a lot about how passionate they are about Jesus. 
but don't seem to be able to clean a kitchen for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I just think sometimes we just need to sort of turn some... A lot going on in that question, a lot in response. Just need to sort of, yeah, poke around a bit. Thank you very much. Um, I've got a question here. I believe romantic relationships don't require sex to be substantiated, uh, e.g. elderly, trauma, medical issues. If two same-sex individuals become a romantic couple without having sex, is this viable? Um, I think... I mean, obviously, marriage is marked by a sexual relationship, but it's also marked by an exclusivity. Um, And, you know, you are committing yourself to this person above other people. I want to be... Actually, one of the advantages about being single is that I haven't made some big promises in front of uh, those other people to commit myself to one other person. And (laughs) put it perhaps unhealthy, the the danger of a romantic, non-sexual relationship that sort of looks like marriage but isn't marriage is you sort of... You can get all the... You get the disadvantage without some of the advantages. And I say, well, the advantage of being single, and there are many advantages of being single, is that you haven't committed yourself to one other person. And the danger of the sort of a romantic same-sex relationship can be a sort of quasi-marriage, which can be unhelpful, and it can lead into sin, and it can be a dishonest thing sometimes, because it's sort of basically marriage in everything but sex, and that can be unhelpful for the couple, it can be unhelpful for others. But that said... You know, I know friends who are same-sex attracted. There has been, um, in the past, some sexual attraction between them, but um, it hasn't led them into sin. And they do, um, you know, they have committed themselves to supporting each other. But what they've done is they work really hard against it becoming a quasi-marriage, both so that they, they end up having sex but also because they want to recognise that it's not a marriage and they want to preserve some of the advantages of being a single. I can think of you know, just a, and a few friends who've really managed to do that in a beautiful way. So could you help us with that? Because I guess a lot of, a lot of the way this is spoken about is it's the action that's wrong, it's not the intention. And so I guess maybe you, there's a case to make that actually if you cut off the action from the yeah. relationship, that actually that's possible... Well, are you, are you, yeah, suggesting something about the intention there. Well, as well, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, English society, going back a couple of generations, it used to be quite standard for two men and two women to live together, um, who weren't married, and, no, and no, nobody was going. Well, of course, they must be gay, or there must be a sexual relationship. People just, you know, they were just, you know, people who've been colleagues, um, or you know, it, it just felt well. It's nice to have the companionship and the friendship, and people used to do that, and it used to not be a problem because we weren't all obsessed with sex and presuming that every same-sex friendship must be sexual, really, even if they don't know it. I mean, <laughs> sort of... And actually, so part of me, in some circumstances, I just want people to say, we need to, we need to relax and allow there to be, you know, these two women that live together in a room. They're just, they are just good friends. Yeah. And actually, part of friendship can be living together, um, and it's not a problem we shouldn't get all upset about it. So there's that. And then there, you know, there are other situations where you know, I, I've got you know, friends who you know, they, they have... They don't want to have sex. They think that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, but they are romantically drawn to each other. Um, and that has 
been, and living, living together has been really unhelpful because it's led them into sin. Um, and although they started very clear that they wouldn't end up basically being a married couple, um, the circumstances they put themselves in basically meant it was inevitable given the situation, their personalities, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, it's on all of this, it is talking to people and finding out what's really... Because, again, the other thing is that patterns of same-sex attraction, people's experiences of sexuality are unique. And we tend to presume that everybody's experience is the same. And one of the, one of the major discoveries for me and being open and honest about my sexuality and talking to other people who are gay, same-sex attracted was finding how different my experience was to other people. So, you know, I've got a lot of same-sex attracted friends who the, the real issue for them is just, a, is just a close friendship with somebody of the same sex that just becomes emotionally intimate, and that's when it gets really complicated. When I am just one of the most shallow people in the world, and it's all about looks <laughs> and a certain type of look, and nobody needs to worry about any relationship I have with another man unless they fit a particular tick box exercise, which is so embarrassingly shallow that, you know, we won't go there. But it just means that the advice you'd give me and my friend would be very different. And the godliness battle is very different. And actually, I might have, more, I might have much more in common when it comes to patterns of temptation, what's hard with a lot of other heterosexual people in this room than I would with some of my gay friends. And what is key for us as we seek to support friends is just find out, you know... What are, the, what are the particular temptations for them? What are the particular battlegrounds for them? And then also to make sure we share the same sort of information mm. and that we don't think, oh, I'm there to help out this boy. You know, that they can help us too. And we'll often find that actually the people that perhaps most help us inhabit our sexualities in healthier, better, more Christ-like ways are our same-sex attracted gay friends. Ed, I've, we're nearing the end of time, I wonder if we could fit two questions in two minutes. And okay. they are quite um, thought-through questions, so I don't really want to rush them, but, but, uh, but there we are. Um, as you point out, our bodies are designed for sex. Uh, I get how Jesus can satisfy our longing for companionship and having spiritual children. I just I don't get how he can satisfy our physical longings. Would he, so when I feel physical longings, when I feel sexual desire... There's at one level, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus can't satisfy them. But what are, what are they, they're basically saying, what are they saying to me? They're saying to me that I, I'm not autonomous, that I, I, need, I need someone out. I have desires that give me, I have desires that give me a desire to be united to someone forever in a perfect union. That, you know, so what am I doing? I'm saying actually, so these desires I'm feeling are basically just telling me that I'm created to be in a relationship with Jesus. He's not going to satisfy them in the here and now, but they're telling me, they're pointing me to him. And there is pain in the here and now, not being able to satisfy them. But actually, everybody I've spoken to who's had sex hasn't been fully and completely and perfectly satisfied by the sexual act. You know, the whole area of being a human being is being unsatisfied. Sex does not satisfy. Nothing on this planet satisfies. Our desires 
um, that we've been given, a God-given, and only will be satisfied in Jesus. So some of us, as it were, get the experience of sex, and we're sort of, you know, enjoy sex and some satisfaction, but are always disappointed, and we're being told there's something much better. Some of us never have sex and have this ache and longing that isn't satisfied in the here and now, but we're being told one day it will be fulfilled. Um, you know, our desires are meant to point us to Jesus and lead us to him. Thank you. And, and final question. If we're struggling with being single, especially as we get older, how can we continue to look to Jesus without being depressed or feeling like an odd one out, anxious about the future alone? Um, I mean, again, I think, well, I think the other, the other thing that the single, the, 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 well, let's put it another way. The danger of the married couples in this room is that you don't need to trust in Jesus so much because you, you, you can trust in your husband and wife. And it's amazing how everybody thinks it's the husband and wife that's going to die before them. They're going to be okay. And, you know, you've got your children who are going to be there looking after you. And you, there's just loads of ways in which you don't have to trust in Jesus. And actually, single people do have to trust in Jesus a little bit more because you do have that, who's going to look after me? You know, who's going to come and visit me? Who's going to, you know, they, um, and it, it just increases the opportunities to trust in Jesus. Um, and that's scary because we prefer to trust in another person. We prefer to trust in our children. But part of me wants to say, Really? Because actually the reality is for you know, half the people, you will be the one left alone. Um, and <laughs> your children are planning on putting you in a home. I don't know what to say. You know, <laughs> but, 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 you know, just, it just, we, we just, Jesus, you know, it's back to the, it's back to the death thing. It's, the, it's back to the, going, going back to, we all fear loneliness, don't we? The biggest human fear. And, and the experience of loneliness and the fear of loneliness can be particularly intense for single people. But, you know, when, you know, I've been made to think about this when people say, oh, but you'll die. And I, I will not die alone. Actually, it's interesting. My, I think all my grandparents died alone, despite the fact they were married. Actually, no, one of them didn't. The other three did. But they didn't die alone because they were Christians. Jesus was there as they lay in their bed, as they breathe their last, and Jesus was there waking them up. We do, not, we do not need to fear loneliness as Christians. We'll never be alone. That is the promise of the gospel. And who else, who else can say that? I mean, you, you might look your husband or wife in the eye and say, I'll never leave you, but one day you will. Sorry to say. I mean, you know, I hope you didn't come for an encouragement. You know. But, but <laughs> one, day, one day, they will not be able to keep that promise. But Jesus looks you in the eye and says, I will be with you always. And he can keep to that promise. He's the only person who can make that promise and keep to it. He's the only person that won't let us down. Thank you. I'm going to say a prayer and then, um, yeah, then we'll do a couple more things. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for that promise uh, that the bride uh, will marry the groom at the end of time. Thank you that our Lord Jesus, by his own blood, has committed himself to us. And we pray for us all, Father, whatever our struggles, whatever the trials we walk, 
that you would help our eyes to be set on the Lord Jesus in every way. Please, by your spirit, Father, reveal to us where we're tempted to look elsewhere. Uh, Please help us to grow into the church where we can support one another to uh, keep us focused on the Lord Jesus and his perfection in every way. And we thank you for our brother Ed. Thank you for the wisdom he has got, the things he has been able to share for his church family in Bristol. And we do pray, Father, for him that you would continue to help him discover the riches of Christ towards him. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ed, do you, do you want to tell us? You've got a couple yeah, of little things we've got to tell us. Slides, so we're, I'm going to try and pretend to be American for a moment. Okay. <laughs> if I was an American speaker, I would, without any embarrassment or shame, mention the fact that I've written two books. <laughs> so I'm going to pretend I'm. And I've got an, and basically we've got this slide up because this is to say these are books written by the Living Out team. Um, if you want to discover more about any of the things we've talked about, you can follow this link and hey, you can get 20% discount. So, plausibility problem, Rob mentions. Purposeful sexuality is all about some of these big pictures of theology about how our sexuality is a gift from God to point us to Jesus. If you want to find, think about more about that and the working for that, go to that. And then if you're thinking, Ed Shaw, slightly bored of him, I'll forgive you. Uh, Andrew Bunt, finding your best identity, another member of the team, uh, speaking out of his own experience about confusion around gender um, and sexuality as a child and teenager, uh, writing a book about identity. So, uh, do go to those. You go to the IVP Books website, the UK version, don't go to the US. Um, Living Out 20 will get you a 20% off discount. So there's that. And then there's another slide saying, oh yeah, I'm, oh yeah, this is about, okay, let's really try and pretend I'm American. Um, <laughs> Living Out is the ministry I'm involved in. We're trying to find 500 people that would give us £10 a month. If you would like to be one of those, go to livingout.org, give. Let's go back to the book slide, and that can be the sort of thing that's on when people leave, because it's just embarrassing on the giving side of things. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing that. Ed, can I say a huge thank you for joining us uh, all the way from Bristol and um, for the wisdom you've shared and the things you've brought to us. So we really appreciate you making the time to do that. Thank you. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Help us, Father, to come to him, to drink the water only he can give. And please keep our hearts and minds set on him. We pray this by your Spirit's help, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming out. Please do take a seat. Um, Just a reminder, there's no equip or central in August, uh, because most of you will be on a beach somewhere. Uh, But we will meet back for the first Wednesday in September for Central and then the third Wednesday for Equip. Uh, So we look forward to seeing you there. I don't know if anything practical needs to happen for Holiday Club tomorrow. Perhaps if someone could tell me, that would be 
Clear all the tables out and put the chairs. Put the chairs back in the middle. Just make sure the person's off it first. Chairs back in the middle. Thank you.